Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Marty Patrickwin, journalist at iPolitics, new acquisition of the Star Metro National News Empire. Welcome to Shortcuts. <laughs> Thanks. I didn't even know that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I knew. <laughs> Marty, on today's show, Quebec's CAC majority just begging for a lowbrow pun. Not going to take the bait. No, no, you have to take the bait. How can you not? I, I used to go, I've been to a fair number of games in Boston with my Habs jacket on, and the governing party of Quebec was yelled at me as an epithet. Ah, you love the CAC. That's how they say it down there. Also on today's show, goodbye NAFTA, hello Usmika. If it's a deal in name only, can we please get a better one? Welcome to the show. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Matt McKay, Max Noel, Janice Moore, John Oman, Kai Knightsparrow, Melina Falomia, Catherine Teichman, and Mike Dover. I support Canada Land because I appreciate a very good long-form interview. I don't always agree with you, but I always appreciate how you're respectful, yet tough with your guests. And Marty, this episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by noodles, specifically rapid stir-fry noodles with chicken and broccoli from our sponsor, HelloFresh. Have you ever had a box of, of these recipes sent to your door? That I have not. I only eat toast. 
Well, if you ever uh, decide to expand your repertoire, I think that people, you know, like noodles are a good comfort food thing to do on like a Sunday night, but like we're just way too Italian centric with our noodles. Like why not just whip up a quick stir fry with noodles? I think people do stir fries and they don't use noodles. Like I think it's like a special thing when people get their actual like lo mein in the supermarket. Why not have all of these ingredients sent to you in the exact quantities you need? A lot of the chopping is pre-done. Some of these recipes now, they're making them even quicker. They can be ready in 20 minutes or less. Delicious recipes that everyone just kind of likes like rapid stir fry noodles with chicken and broccoli and they test this stuff in their test kitchen to make sure everybody likes it. If this sounds appealing to those of you who eat more than toast, then you can try it out and get 50% off of your first box when you visit hellofresh.ca slash podcasts and enter the promo code CanadaLand, please, or else, you know, what was the point of this whole message? Marty. Mm-hmm. Quebec. Quebec. <laughs> so here's what usually happens. I, from my downtown Toronto studio, sneer and dismiss and judge a province that would hand a majority to a populist uprising that, as far as I can tell, like won't let an Orthodox Jew with a kippah on his head teach like a math class to fifth graders, if I, like or a Sikh or anybody wearing a, a niqab or like... so that fifth grade class. If Mr. T wanted to suddenly teach a French or a math class here in Quebec or what have you, he would not be able to do so with that giant novelty gold cross around his neck because uh, it's a outsized demonstration of religiosity, and that is uh, not kosher. Uh, anymore. Go back. Okay. So what typically happens here is that I, I consider a modern society that would not let either my uncle David or Mr. T teach a math class. And I judge it. And I say, this is xenophobia and racism. What else can I possibly call it? And then I get angry emails from people saying, you ignorant Anglo, all you're reading is the English media spin. You couldn't possibly, and you haven't taken the time to understand the intricacies and the vagaries and the subtleties of what is actually happening in Quebec and its media. Is that the case? I mean, the whole thing about religiosity has been basically a, uh, a factor of the political class here in Quebec. I don't fault Quebecers for you know, being against religious symbols in, in public places, just as I wouldn't fault anybody in Ontario for being against. It just remains that the political class in Quebec remains one of the few that is willing to exploit that sort of fear for political gain. And that's the issue that I have always had. And it's also even more complicated here in Quebec because the idea of religiosity mostly, and let's let's be honest, it's mostly non-Catholic religiosity, is always tied to the sort of the, the regression of French um, by these very politicians. And that's the most cynical thing that often happens. And it bleeds into the whole issue of immigration and the place of religious minorities in, in Quebec society. And it's an ongoing debate that we've been having for over a decade. And I, I don't think it's over. I mean, you know, the invocation of the notwithstanding clause to prevent people with religious head garb, that came after the election. Yeah. But people voted for the CAC mm -hmm. after they said, we're going to test immigrants to see if they speak French. Yeah. After a certain period of time here. And at one point it was like, what are you going to do if they, if they fail that test? You're going to like drive them down the 401 and dump them off in Cornwall. Like what, what's the plan here? <laughs> yeah. And he kind of like, he didn't have an answer for that. He had to walk it back, but then he won a completely unexpected 
majority. Yeah. So how can we just blame this on the political class? I mean, the voters had something to say about this, yeah? Because the the whole issue of the whole issue that we have everything we've just been talking about, we've I mean, this is a perfect demonstration of it. We've been talking a lot about it. Influence communication does uh, does media analysis here in Quebec, and they figured out that the number one most and this is a uh, sorry, I'm making a French word mm-hmm. into an English one, but mediatized issue. You know, the issue on which the media spent the most time talking about was immigration. But if you actually look at what people vote on uh, here in Quebec, as they vote in a lot of other places, most other places, I, I'd say that Quebec is actually very milk toast. La Presse did this uh, exercise with, I think it's upwards of fifteen or 1,600 people, and basically said, what are, you, what are your priorities in this election? So number one was environment. Two, three, four was, you know, healthcare, uh, economy, and education. Fifth, very, very distant fifth, was immigration and protection of the French language at 7.8%. So it was it was important to exactly 7.8% of the electorate. It sort of mirrors exactly what happened in 2014 with Parti Québécois and the, the Charter of Quebec Values. If you went out and asked people, do we have to protect the French language? Do we have to make sure that immigrants coming to this province speak French? Yes, of course. Everybody's violently in agreement. But then if you take that and say, okay, well, how important is that comparatively to your ability to get a family doctor or, you know, have the issue that you're not flooding uh, every year because of climate change or, you know, not having mold in your son's school? I mean, it's not even close. I think Lecturalité did that very exercise in 2014 and it was 10th out of 12 priorities. So all this to say is that I don't think people necessarily voted for or against the CAQ or the CAC for reasons of immigration. In fact, I don't think it was very much of an issue on the ground. People voted in large part because they wanted change. They wanted a government other than the liberals and the PQ. I take your point. And I think that it seems just clear on the face of it, this was a vote against the liberals and they got just absolutely trounced. And it also, as many of have observed, seems to be like kind of, well, maybe not the final because it's never the final, but the final-ish death knell for separatism. That's just a, just a non-starter, it seems. So it was like, we're not going to vote for this and we're not going to vote for that. So what do we have left? That's right. I guess I hear what you're saying. It's not that they were, everyone was so jazzed by this idea of dumping immigrants who don't speak French off at the Ontario border or the, the fact that they're reducing immigration levels. So this was not the major issue. But like you say, they weren't voting for or against it. And I guess where I may hold up my my snobby Anglo nose is, is to say, well, I can't say anything from Doug Ford's province, but like, yeah, you know, Jesse, you really you, you really can't. Shouldn't people <laughs> vote against that? Shouldn't people vote against Shouldn't that be like a disqualifying part of your plot? Like if you're going to talk that shit, then you don't get to govern and you don't get a majority government. I mean, like so an, an interesting thing happened about three quarters of the way through the campaign. Exactly what you just said. You know, that Legault had to basically walk back a lot of the stuff, basically because, you know, as a provincial government, you don't have the capability of throwing anybody out of the country. And the federal government only removes people like uh, permanent residents, only removes permanent residents in cases of, you know, serious criminality or if they misrepresent themselves on their phones. That's the only time that they throw them out. So Legault was sort of faced with this in the middle of the campaign or three quarters of the way through the campaign. And he fumbled it completely. And an interesting thing happened, and a similar thing happened in 2014. The second that the specter of people losing their jobs or people losing their status, what have you, because they didn't pass a French or a cultural test, 
Legault began losing support. So that happened right around the third debate. And he all of a sudden he came out in that debate and said, look, I made a mistake. You know, nobody's going to lose their nobody's going to lose their job. Nobody's going to get kicked out. Of course, that sort of went exactly against what he was talking about before. But all this to say is that he started talking about immigration in less of a negative light than he was prior to that. And there's one very simple reason is because the war room at the CAQ were doing their dailies and they saw the CAQ uh, support start to drop the second that the idea that someone might actually lose some sort of status because of what Legault was doing. So he corrected course. He did exactly what the PQ didn't do in 2014. So all is to say is that in the abstract, yes, people are very much like, yeah, protect the French language, have a very solid division between church and state and all that kind of thing. But they don't want anybody to lose their job or be kicked out as a result of ostensibly going against that. And what about losing your job because you're wearing religious headgarb? That seems to be actually a practical thing that is going to exclude people. Yeah, but but again, we are very much at the very, very beginning of a, of a government. And so he's talking in the abstract. And so it remains to be seen. And I, I have a feeling that the second that anybody that the idea that somebody will, will lose a job because of wearing a keeper or what have you is going to be a very, very difficult thing for Legault to deal with. It happened. It actually happened in 2014 when the Parti Québécois brought up the Charter of Quebec Values, which I'll remind people, was basically banning outsized religious garments, be it headgear, hijab, uh, mm -hmm. what have you, from the bodies of anybody drawing a paycheck from the, from the provincial government. The second that Marwa invoked this idea, it was very, very popular. The second that she invoked the idea that someone might actually lose their job because of it, that's where she started to lose support. And she's and then if you watch the rhetoric after that, it was just like, no, no one's going to lose their jobs. They'll, they'll be they'll be moved to another department or they're not going to they're not going to lose their status. You know, Legault, I have a feeling is going to have to do the exact same thing. I have a big problem with just dismissing this as like, oh, this is just theoretical bigotry. It's not practical bigotry. Let me tell you, if you're like a teacher right now or in teacher's college and you are wearing a kippah mm -hmm. or you're wearing any other religious head garb or you are Mr. T you're not feeling too good about your job security right now. Like that message is loud and clear to those communities. Like <laughs> that's not a theoretical thing when society is debating whether or not you're allowed to work in certain public capacities. Yeah. I mean, the whole, uh, you just look at the, the, the voting lines here in Quebec, the CAQ was voted by off Island francophones, people that don't live on the Island of Montreal. Uh, it, it, it turned blue, uh, or light blue, I guess, in this case, if you look at the Island of Montreal, where, you know, 85% of Quebec's immigrants settle. It went liberal. There's two exceptions with the CAQ in the east part of the island, and then there's some Quebec solidaire. But other than that, everybody here on the island of Montreal basically agrees with you. Yeah. Quebec has a demographic problem, a variety of demographic problems. One of them being is that there isn't the economic imperative for immigrants to move beyond the island of Montreal yet, as there has been in Toronto. And for that reason, it is that much easier for people that don't live in Montreal to scapegoat new arrivals. It's a situation that won't really change until, it's weird to say, until Montreal becomes so expensive that basically immigrants have to move to the hinterland. I was looking at party platforms from 1998 because I'm a loser. And basically, they were saying that they were all saying the same thing. It's like, we got to find a way to get immigrants outside of the region of Montreal. So I'm talking about Montreal and the, and the suburbs and the exurbs even. And we have to get them, you know, to areas well outside there, you know, in and around Quebec City, uh, around Sherbrooke, Maurice, the Laurentians, et cetera, et cetera. This was a problem 20 years ago, uh, and not a thing has been done about it. Lots of fun with the notwithstanding clause in your province and mine, Marty. It's a blast to learn that our rights are uh, not absolute. They're highly conditional and the House wins in a push. That's right. Of course.
we're the king of the notwithstanding clause. We invoked it for uh, Bill 178 for the size of letters on public science. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You guys did it or almost did it for the size of city council in Toronto. You'll whip it out for anything. Yeah. Like this, this was like a, yeah, exactly. a huge campaign to, you know, the vengeance of the premier on the city of Toronto, destroying the way we got, you guys just like, <laughs> doesn't, what, what? Notwithstanding. 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 Yeah, yeah, exactly. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Marty, I don't know if you've ever been on Shortcuts before, but you listen to it every week, I'm sure. Of course I do, Jesse. Then you know, then you know <laughs> that we uh, we have a feature called Duly Noted. Do you have something in the news that you think people should take notice of? Yeah, and look, I, I apologize for talking about the Quebec election again, but it's just something I have to, I've been nose deep in for, for several weeks. The one thing that, uh, that has come up here that you might not hear much about outside the province of Quebec is to what extent the polls literally and figuratively pooched this election. And it's, it's a longstanding problem. So this year, you know, the, the Liberals and the CAQ the CAC were neck and neck, according to the polls, you know, going into the polls uh, last Monday. I saw some uh, liberal internals that sort of said very, very optimistically that the, the liberals had a ceiling of 52 and might eke out a minority government. Like it wasn't even close. It was a total and utter blowout for uh, for the CAQ. So the polls uh, blew it this time. They blew it in 2012. There was it was supposed to be a PQ, you know, crushing victory for the PQ in 2012. They eked out a minority government. 2014, they underplayed the the size of the liberal majority, and uh, lo and behold, they they got that wrong as well. We got to stop relying on these things, uh, and unfortunately, it, it's imperfect because not everybody else can go out and sort of take the pulse of the community. But there's got to be a better way because they got it completely and utterly wrong this time. 
Well, I will take exception to the use of the phrase literally pooched it unless a dog was involved, but otherwise, um, that's true. <laughs> You're right. I'm so otherwise stupid. duly noted. <laughs> yeah. They didn't live. Okay. Unless the dog was present and yes. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> I, uh, I got one for you. Okay. Toronto citizen lab always does incredible work on the cybersecurity front and they had kind of a bombshell regarding this malware that it, that is being used to target journalists. And the story specifically is of this Mexican journalist, Sebastian Barragan, who was reporting on just atrocious, violent abuses from Mexican police officers. Uh, and it came to implicate various governments. And then what does he get on his phone but a mysterious text message that promised him incriminating information about civil servants if he just clicked this link? No way. And had he clicked that link, which luckily he did not, a piece of malware called Pegasus would have completely hijacked his phone, taking control of the microphone and camera. And he alleges that this was the government basically trying to somehow compromise him. Maybe who knows what they could do. They could try to get his personal information. And, you know, the usual, like if a journalist has you dead to rights, it's better to shoot the messenger and discredit the journalist than to try to defend yourself. If they've really got you, that's probably the game plan is try to yeah. get their data and that scared the hell out of me. I mean, you know, somebody said, are you really surprised? I guess I'm not really surprised. Like, I kind of like, yeah, I guess that's what, I guess that's normal now. Um, but it did make me think like, yeah, I should probably think about that. Like, that's probably the thing that you would do if you felt like I was about to take down your vast empire or, or get you kicked in jail is, to, you know, what can we do to compromise this person and discredit him? That's and, right. Uh, and just to add to that, uh, and I'm going to use the word literally properly this time, they literally shoot the messenger a lot in Mexico. And uh, this is probably... One of the last things these Mexican journalists community needs, because so many of them have been killed over the last few years. That is an absolutely accurate and valid use of literally. <laughs> Duly noted. Okay, I have learned from past mistakes, Marty, not to, not to pretend that I know much about trade bargaining. But I will say this. I'm watching the coverage of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada, the USMCA victory. And the way that Christia Freeland is being hailed as a warrior princess and as the hero of this negotiation, and it's not that I know that that's false and that we completely caved, because I don't understand this stuff deeply enough, mm -hmm. but I do question upon which evidence this victory is being hailed. Like, it kind of feels to me like everyone was just nervous that this thing wasn't getting done, and... It got done, and so now we're declaring victory, and we're electing her the hero, and right. I don't know. Am I right to be skeptical of this? I think you have to take it in context and in relative terms. The, at the outset of all of this, as we know well know from Donald Trump's uh, rhetoric, was that he was going to tear up NAFTA, tear up NAFTA, tear up NAFTA. That's what he said over and over and over again, that, that NAFTA was no more and that we'd do side deals with Canada and Mexico if we did any sort of deal at all, et cetera, et cetera. We are a long way from that. Uh, the other thing, too, is that comparatively to Mexico, Canada gave up relatively little comparatively. So uh, they had significant moves on dispute resolution and they had, you know, sort of favoring the U.S. on that. They had significant moves on the cost of labor that, uh, that the U.S. sort of won out on. Canada didn't have any of that. We still have Chapter 19 in place and uh, we didn't have to do much in terms of labor standards or anything like that. The one place where we did move was, you know, 
as a headline, it doesn't doesn't really hurt very much. It's you know the U.S. gains three point five eight percent or whatever it was of Canada's milk market. Uh, big deal. So in that sense, there's a great term in French that's called sauver les meubles, which means saving the furniture. And I think that's what Freeland is being congratulated for because she basically stanched the bleeding. She made sure that it wasn't nearly as bad as the rhetoric was suggesting at the outset of all of this. It's more about averting catastrophe and an economic collapse than it is that we struck one hell of a great deal. That's right. And, you know, the New York Times piece on it was really good because of the last line that basically said, you know, this is a bill that uh, or this is a trade deal that is not going to be won't likely be voted on until, you know, next spring or whatever, when the context of all of this can be completely and utterly different. Uh, we might have a different Congress then. We might have a different Senate then. Uh-huh. We might not have the current president who we have in place now uh, there any longer. Who knows? These things change very, very quickly in 2018. So, yeah, all this to say is that uh, this whole, you know, 18-month or 16-month song and dance over NAFTA might all be for naught if the context changed to the extent that it polls seem to be suggesting uh, is going to happen in November. I will bear down on a couple areas where I do know a little bit more than, you know, dairy, the culture stuff and the copyright stuff. And these are the little things that we're ne- you know, we were never going to hold up a, a deal like this on these issues. It seems like the U.S. got their way with copyright and they've extended the term of copyright, Canadian copyright, from 50 to 70 years after the death of the creator. Yeah. You know, this is really like a compromise of our sovereignty. Like we, we have a pretty vigorous conversation within Canada about what we should do about copyright. And there's all kinds of groups. I used to cover them extensively that are trying to have like a detailed conversation so we can decide what's like an actual Canadian solution for this. And here we just completely caved to, you know, America is the biggest beneficiary of private interests, like holding on to copyright for as long as possible. That's right. Who loses in that? Educational sector loses in that. Creators lose in that. Upstarts lose in that. And another 20 years after the death of a creator before stuff hits the public domain is a big fucking deal. And I don't remember any conversation when our government just gave that away. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would say to that is you're right. And it's a similar thing with drug prices, right? They extended the the amount of time that private pharmaceutical companies can continue making their drugs without generics coming in from eight, eight to 10 years, I believe. But what I would say to that is that if you say the lines 50 to 70 years, people's eyes just glaze over. It's human nature. Unfortunately for this topic, like it's not particularly sexy when you say that. When I mean, if 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 you were to throw some imminent danger in there, if you were to say, you know, in ten years uh, America can come in and, or say, five years from now America can come in and start buying up cultural properties in in Canada, sure, then you'd have some sort of real scandal. But esoteric sort of ideas of of copyright and stuff like that. It just doesn't bite, unfortunately. Maybe it's not a topic that's going to, you know, be on the front page of, of newspapers, but it's not as if there aren't Canadians who give a shit about this. Uh, I think that they were just they were just steamrolled. You bring up the cultural ownership question. This one, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what the hell happened because, you know, there was a lot of saber rattling during the negotiations where Trudeau was saying, this is a non-starter. You, our very sovereignty is at stake. Yeah. The cultural protections must be must be maintained. We cannot have American media companies, American conglomerates buying up our media. Hey, imagine that. And, 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 you know, I was like, who the hell is, what American is trying to buy up Canadian, you know, struggling newspapers? And, but there, a question arose from that, which is like, well, yeah, but what about the digital media space? 
we of course had these rules in Canada that you know American companies you can't have foreign ownership of Canadian newspapers except post media for some reason you can't have uh, you know American ownership of of course broadcast media here in Canada because like that's on public airwaves and I kind of understand some of the protectionism if you've only got like I don't know a hundred TV channels or a hundred radio stations the idea that you know you, you you could easily see an American company just buying them all up mm-hmm. but the question of digital digital media and whether the cultural protections would extend to digital was brought up during the negotiation. And then we get this Usmaka and Melanie Jolie, the outgoing, you know, she was turfed as the heritage minister after a pretty disastrous run there. She's tweeting, I'm proud that we got the cultural exemptions. They do extend to digital. And I'm like going back and forth with Michael Geist trying to say, what the hell is going on here? Like, is anything different? And does that mean that American companies will not be allowed to own Canadian digital news sites? Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I'm, there's no conflict of interest here. I'm not, I'm not turning down or fielding offers from Americans. Um, but if you're starting a, like a startup in Canada and you're in the tech space and you're looking for investors, the investors are looking to eventually sell. And who's buying? Big American companies. So like, if everything goes right, you can get investment for a Canadian tech company uh, because maybe one day you'll sell it for 100 times what you put in right. to Google or Facebook. I don't want to jump to conclusions here, but if the cultural ownership exemption thing does start to apply to digital, like this is how it actually hurts Canadian culture is what I'm trying to say, is if investors are like, well, I'm not going to invest in this media startup because like you can't sell it to anyone who's buying. Unless unless you sell it to another Canadian or whatever. Yeah, I'll say it again. You can't sell it to anyone who's buying. <laughs> like <laughs> If you're limiting the possible acquirers to Canadian buyers, well, there aren't any, you know, and it's only any, even if there are, it's, you know, a much smaller market with a lot less money. Yeah. This is not law yet. Like, I think that all that has been established is that Canada reserves the right to regulate digital media its own way. Mm -hmm. And for that to basically be not a part of this Usmaka deal. But the implication of the way this is being discussed is that this is about preventing American ownership of Canadian media. And I don't know what you get in that case. Like, basically, you're just preventing this from, like, developing as as an actual commercial space. And then, so who's going to fund it? And then you've got to deal with that. So you've got to have CanCon funding for these sites. And then we just replicate the whole CanCon regime again. So that's, that's something that's a little concerning to me. It underscores the fact that the whole cultural industry is very much based on the stuff that you started out with there, you know, like old media, newspapers, uh, radio, TV, broadcast, television. I remember talking about with Melanie Jolie like years and years ago when this was all starting and she didn't stop saying the word digital, the digital, we're going to bring this into the 21st century, 21st century. If you look at what she said and also what Pablo Rodriguez said on who's the incoming guy, uh, the culture minister, a lot of it is treated almost as a as an afterthought that they clearly didn't really think through. Is digital yeah. media included? Yes, no. Well, who really knows? It is one of the issues of uh, there's a great another term in French is uh, village gaulois, which is like means like it's we're a village unto our own. And we have these sort of artificial walls around what we produce and what we're able to sell. And uh, CanCon is, uh, is very much an example of that. Yeah, I think, you know, an afterthought certainly to the American negotiators who couldn't give a rat's ass. Well, exactly. And an afterthought to our own negotiators and and our own possibly heritage department as to, like, what is this and what's it going to be? And here we are in our space of neglect. Thank you, Marty. Hey, thank you, Jesse. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts for this week. You can email me about it. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. And we are on Twitter at Canada Land. Marty, where can people find you? At Martin Patrick on Twitter and nowhere else. (laughs) 
Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our politics show Commons just relaunched with a focus on corruption in Canada. Check it out, hosted by Archie Mann. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us at patreon.com slash canadaland. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.